Awesome. Good to see you this morning. If you have a Bible this morning, please take it out and turn to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, first book of the New Testament. We are continuing a series called Extraordinary. It's a study in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which covers Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. We are continuing a two-week little kind of mini-series within this series on Jesus' words regarding divorce and remarriage. And boy, am I glad this is the last week we're doing this. Come on. (laughs) Uh, Okay, let's pray. God, thank you this morning for the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in us as Christians and dwells among us as a church. Lord, there there are people here this morning that need more than just a a message. They, They need the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And so whether that's for physical healing or emotional healing or the restoration of a relationship or marriage issues, um, God, whatever it might be, you, you are able, more than able, to do far more than we could imagine or think. And so we pray you would do that today in all of our lives. And Lord, as we open your word this morning, I just pray that, that there would be life. It would be life-giving, that we'd understand it and be able to apply it in our lives. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. There is going to come a point in your life, no matter how old you are, maybe it's already happened, when someone, a friend or a family member is going to come to you and, and ask uh, or, or want to talk to you about their marriage that's not going well. Um, maybe they just want a listening ear. Maybe they, they just need someone to talk to. Or maybe they, they, they lead with, what do you think? What do you think about this? And, and when we think about that question, it, it really doesn't matter what we think. The more important question is, what does God think? Like, what is God's word about this? And so we're taking two weeks in our, in our worship services to cover this topic because I know that, that you're going to be involved with this, and you probably already have. But how do you answer that question? How do you know if this is the right thing? How do you know if this is the God thing that, that people need to hear? And so... Uh, Jesus spent a lot of time talking about this, and so we need to address it as, as, a, as a church as well. What if, what if we could become that extraordinary community of people that are, that are grace-filled but guided by truth that people want to be a part of? That they want truth, but they know that they're always going to get truth with grace. It's always going to be met with love. What if we were that kind of people? What if you were that kind of Christian? that somebody would, would know they could open their heart to you and be honest with you because they know that they're not going to be met with condemnation. They're not going to be met with criticism, judgment. But they're going to be met with truth that's married to grace. That's the, the people that I want to be a part of. That's the person I want to be. Um, so, so two Jewish rabbis in the first century, Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hillel, developed two different schools of thought related to Scripture. Uh, they, they disagreed on the right interpretation of Scripture. Rabbi Shammai was more conservative. Uh, his interpretation of the Jewish law was more strict and more literal. Rabbi Hillel was more liberal in his interpretation of the law. His interpretations were much more accommodating to people that violated the law. So as it came to other issues, and particularly the issue of divorce, uh, their, their perspectives and their, their uh, worldview or the way they interpreted Scripture was the same for divorce as it was for other topics. Rabbi Shammai was very conservative. 
He believed that the, the only reason that divorce was permissible, as, as was shared by Jesus, was um, the, the issue of sexual immorality. Rabbi Hillel was more liberal in his interpretation of Scripture, and he believed that, that divorce was permissible really for, for any matter. Whose opinion do you, do you think was more popular <laughs> in the first century? Rabbi Hillel, the one that said divorce is okay for just about any reason. So the debate between Shammai and Hillel still lives. It, it's still going on in the life of the church. In 2,000 years, the issue has not been resolved. As you heard last week, there, there are two kind of extreme spectrums as to, as to how we interpret the scriptures related to, to marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And so I'm, I'm humble enough to recognize that I'm not going to solve this issue. I'm not going to be the, the one that resolves it. After 2,000 years of study and research and interpretation, I don't know that I have all the answers, and neither do you. And so, so what this debate requires is that we are able to extend great grace to other Christians that interpret this differently than we do. That's the community I want to be a part of. We don't compromise truth. We hold to our convictions related to truth. But when there's a difference of opinion about a topic that's never been completely resolved historically, that we tread carefully on that one and tread carefully with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in order to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the church. Amen? That's my hope. So Jesus was invited into this debate in Matthew chapter 19, into the Shammai Hillel debate. And that's what we're looking at in Matthew chapter 19. If you're, if you're there, read along with me beginning in verse 3. It says some Pharisees, those were Jewish leaders, came and tried to trap Jesus with this question. Again, an invitation into this debate. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? Jesus said, haven't you read the scriptures? They record that from the beginning God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart or separate what God has joined together. Then why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written, divorce, a written notice of divorce and send her away, they asked. Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts. In other words, at the root of divorce was sin, man's sinful heart. But it was not what God had originally intended. And I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery, unless his wife has been unfaithful sexually. Then Jesus', then, then, uh, Jesus disciples then said to him, if this is the case, it's better not to marry. Jesus said, not everyone can accept this statement, only those whom God helps. Again, the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus inviting us into a life, an extraordinary life that's impossible for us to live on our own. In order to live the life that Jesus invites us to requires the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And it's no different with marriage. If we are going to fulfill the, the requirements, the teachings of Jesus concerning marriage, divorce, and remarriage, we have to be living by the Holy Spirit. Marriage is hard, y'all. It's a challenge. I've been married 41 years. And sometimes, sometimes you think you have it all figured out, and other times you're like, what? Where did that come from? 
It's, it's just challenging, and we have to recognize that. And Jesus said, you know, this isn't for everyone. Marriage is not for everyone. But, but if you choose to be married, and you choose to live according to the teachings of the scriptures, then you're gonna need extra power. You're gonna need the power of the Holy Spirit. So here's what I wanna do today. In your bulletin, I've given you uh, some, some review notes from last week. Uh, there were seven things that I, that I mentioned last week that I've put in those notes, and I'm not gonna go back and review those, but I've given you some scripture references for those. What I wanna do today is I wanna answer five questions that maybe you're asking. At least there are five questions that as I studied this, they were, they were questions that come up, questions that commentators seek to answer. So as I, as I launch into this this morning, if I don't address the question <clears throat> that you're asking, or if I don't answer it in a way that you want, then go ahead and email Tom Rich, my executive pastor. He'll take care of you. He'll, he'll, uh, you can send all kinds of hate mail, bad email. Send them to Tom and not me, okay? So, so question number one. Are there other exceptions to divorce and remarriage besides sexual immorality and abandonment by a non-Christian spouse? Those are the two that we talked about <clears throat> last week. And this is where it gets challenging. Because there aren't other clearly stated exceptions to divorce in Scripture. We're kind of left with principles. Principles that we can then apply in the marriage context. So the first question is, what about physical abuse? What happens when there's physical abuse in a marriage? Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Now, this is, physical abuse is probably the most widely accepted additional reason for divorce in people's minds. It, it's almost an easy one for, for a lot of people. Um, Paul's going to address it here. The good thing about these verses is at least they're in the context of marriage. So these were, these were verses where Paul was specifically talking about the marriage covenant, the marriage relationship, and, and how we're supposed to live within that. And so he says in verse 28, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies or their own flesh. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one, say no one. No one hates his own body or his own flesh, but feeds it and cares for it or nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Nobody hates themselves. That is nobody with a right mind. No, nobody that's mentally and emotionally healthy. Paul says no one wants to destroy themselves. No, no one wants to hurt themselves or harm themselves, all things being equal unless they're struggling with some type of mental health issue or something else. And, and we would say that if you are, if you are cutting yourself, if you are, are seeking self-harm, if you are trying to hurt yourself, something is desperately wrong. And we need to get some professional help. We, we need to find the root of this issue and why you feel that way about yourself, why you despise yourself, why you hate your life, so that we can keep you from suicidal thoughts or hurting yourself or destructive behavior, right? And the same is true for a person in a marriage that is unable to control their anger and is taking out their anger on their spouse physically, physically abusing them. Now, this is more typical for, for, from men to women than it is from women to men, although it happens both ways. 
But typically because men are stronger physically than women, it, it tends to happen more where men are abusive towards women, they intimidate them and impose their own power and authority on them. And Paul is saying, men, if you strike a woman, if you push a woman, if you grab a woman aggressively, something is desperately wrong in your life. Something is not there. You have, you have crossed the line in the marriage covenant. You are breaking the marriage covenant that God brought you into. This has to be addressed. If you, if you cannot control emotions in a relationship, and you are imposing your strength and your will on a woman, and that includes sexual abuse, forcing her to do things sexually or to have sex when she doesn't want to. If you are imposing your will on her, something is desperately wrong and you need professional help. You need help to sort this out. And the first step is separation. Young lady or older lady, you need to be separated immediately, whether this is you or your children. If your man cannot control his emotion and his anger, and he, he's taking his anger and hate out on you, you need to separate immediately and get in a safe space. And he needs to get professional help. The, the goal is not divorce. The goal is reconciliation. The, the goal is that he would come, he or she, would come to a place of repentance before God, recognizing this is sin, I have violated the marriage covenant. This is, this is from what Paul said, not God's intention, that I would take my hate out or my anger out physically on my bride. Jesus doesn't do that with the church, and we are not to do that with our brides. That we would get professional help, that we would seek therapy, that we would, that we would separate to, to come to repentance, to recognize our sin, and then to figure this out, figure the trigger, triggers, figure everything that's contributing in your life to you being physically aggressive and abusing your wife physically. Does Jeff feel strongly about this? Yes, he does. The marriage covenant required protection and nurture, not physical or sexual abuse. There, there is no reason or excuse for you to continue in that lifestyle. And, and ladies, let me just say this. If that's happened, and, and you, you feel you're at the point where you've separated, but it's like, well, I think he's changed three weeks later. I'm going to go back. Well, no, he did for a little while, and then he didn't change. This is a cycle that may not be broken. This is a cycle that may continue until much worse circumstances happen that are happening now. Get out and get help. And if you're in that situation today, we have some folks that would love to talk with you, guide you, and direct you after the service in our prayer chapel, which is out the doors to your left and around the corner. If you'll go in there, there's folks that'll love you, pray with you, talk with you about steps you can take to begin to hopefully, possibly restore your marriage as the abuser gets the help that they need and, and possibly we could see that marriage fixed. What about emotional abuse? What does scripture say about emotional abuse? Nothing directly. And so those who say emotional abuse is an exception for divorce normally point to a scripture in Exodus 21, verses 10 and 11. Now, I, I need to give you the context in this because it's not the context that you're living in. It's a context of polygamy where a man has a, a slave that he wants to marry and so he marries her and then later he wants to marry someone else. Um, polygamy was a practice, a common practice among the Jews until late in the 10th century A.D. 
Uh, when Jesus, going back, when Jesus said marriage from the beginning was to be between a man and a woman, in that statement, he was prohibiting polygamy. He was saying one man, one woman for life. They become one, not extras, okay? One man, one woman. So Jesus prohibited polygamy. The, the Jewish people, think about the Old Testament. Uh, Abraham and, and uh, David and Solomon that had multiple wives, which God didn't uh, approve of from the beginning. All right, so here's the verse. If a man who has a married slave wife takes another wife for himself, he must not neglect the rights of the first wife, which was the slave, to food, clothing, and sexual intimacy or conjugal rights. If he fails in any of these three obligations, she may leave as a free woman without making any payment. So she is free from the relationship if he does not take care of her physically and emotionally, specifically related to sexual intimacy or, con or conjugal rights. So again, this isn't a, a common situation that we deal with, but those who advocate for divorce on the basis of emotional abuse point to the fact that Scripture uh, requires in this marriage covenant, the marriage relationship, for there to be provision of food, clothing, and sexual intimacy. Now, for the, for the woman, more than the man, this is a, a deep emotional connection that's made in, in sexual intimacy. So to neglect that would be to neglect meeting the emotional needs of your wife. So those three things were understood to be part of the marriage covenant. Yes, the man provides physically and the man provides conjugal rights, as does the wife. The, the rabbis and Paul in the first century recognized the danger of withholding sexual intimacy or conjugal rights from your spouse. So they encouraged limitations to abstinence. Paul talks in, in 1 Corinthians 7 about if you're going to abstain from sexual involvement with each other, make sure it's a really short season and make sure that you agree upon it. This isn't one spouse saying, I'm gonna withhold until you get me what I want. You don't leverage sex in order to manipulate and get what you want. If you, if you both agree that we're gonna, we're gonna take a season, a, a short season, and we're gonna pray, and we're gonna seek God, and so we're not gonna uh, you know, part, partake of sex during that time, then you agree upon that. But that's not to be prolonged. Uh, that could become uh, abusive if you manipulate your spouse with that. So they encouraged limitations to abstaining. But they also recognized that emotional abuse could happen in extreme cases. Uh, emotional abuse could rise to the level of divorce in extreme cases which they called cruelty or humiliation. Cruelty or humiliation. This included forcing a spouse to do things that were indecent, immoral, or against their convictions. In other words, forcing your spouse to do something that would bring shame on them, whether that was sexual or in any other area of life, causing them to compromise their own values, their own convictions, and their own beliefs, or doing things with such extreme treatment that it brought undeserved shame into their lives. We're talking about emotional abuse. So here's the slippery slope. What is emotional abuse? How do we define emotional abuse? Everybody's different. Some people have stronger temperaments and dispositions. Some people can take a little bit more adversity verbally or in whatever other way than other people. So emotional abuse to one person might just be normal marriage to another. Normal, this is just how people deal with each other. We, we don't know. There's no clear standard 
for emotional or verbal abuse. When does it qualify as abuse instead of not meeting that person's expectations? You're supposed to love me this way. And so because you're not loving me that way, you're abusing me. You're neglecting my, my needs. How do we define that? So I've been married 41 years. And there have been times I have, have raised my voice in anger toward my wife. There, there have been times when I have yelled at her. There have been times when I have been sarcastic with her in a demeaning way that hurt her feelings deeply. There's been times when I've been passive aggressive with her to be mean. There, there have been times when I've been actively aggressive with her, not physically, but verbally. Is that emotional? Is that verbal abuse? It's certainly verbal abuse. So when does that lie, rise to the level of divorce? If I do it once a day? If I do it once a week? If I do it once a month? If I do it once a year? If I ever do it? How frequently do I need to raise my voice at my wife before that is verbal abuse, emotional abuse, to the point where divorce is acceptable in Scripture? It's a slippery slope, friends. How am I neglecting my, my wife's emotional needs? How do we define that? In other words, am I, am I really abusing her or am I just not meeting her expectations? Is she really abusing me or is she just not meeting my predetermined expectations about what it means to fill my emotional tank? Ladies, you want all of your men to be Hallmark movie men. And we are not. Nor will most of us ever be. That's why it's called Hollywood. Because we, we don't necessarily live. How many, how many 19, 20, 21, 22-year-old young men really know how to fill a woman's emotional tank? Right? How many 62-year-old men actually know how to fill their wives' emotional tank to the level that they want? So if we fall short of that, is that emotional abuse? How do we, do you see the slippery slope? With that, and yet there was, there was provision in cases that were extreme cases of what they called cruelty or humiliation. So it wasn't like scripture was, and, and, and the rabbis and the teachers were completely ignoring that and writing it off, saying never is verbal or emotional abuse not a reason or, or is a reason to get divorced, but they were awfully careful with it. Listen to what David Instone Brewer says about this. He says, cases of material neglect, physical neglect, which includes uh, physical and sexual abuse, they normally led to divorce. But cases of emotional neglect were normally dealt with by attempted conciliation and fine, uh, financial fines in the hope that divorce could be avoided. And that's our hope. Our hope that if there's, if there's suggested verbal or emotional abuse happening in a marriage, that you'd get help professional help, pastoral help if necessary, to sort through what am I doing that's either causing emotional abuse or is just emotional neglect? What am I doing that's not filling your tank? What, what am I doing that, that is triggering something in you that's creating the wrong response? How do we work through this? And the goal of emotional and verbal abuse, if it's happening, and it's probably happening in most marriages, is that we learn how to cut that down. We, we learn how to become more emotionally nurturing and caring for our spouse. Again, counseling would be the first step. 
Separation, if necessary, if, if the verbal and the emotional abuse is such that it's just sucking the life out of you or destroying you emotionally or, 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 or mentally or spiritually, then I would say separate, get out of the toxic environment, but not with the purpose of divorce, with the purpose of trying to work this thing out in your marriage. Question number two, uh, what does Jesus mean by sexual immorality? Uh, chapter five, verse 32, Jesus says, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, there's a word, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The, that's the, the, the word there for sexual immorality is not the normal word for adultery. That's used later in the verse, twice. The word is the Greek word pornea. Scholars agree that this word pornea was a reference to either sexual intercourse or some sexual intimacy with somebody that wasn't your spouse. It implies a physical act, not a thought or a conversation, not, not an inappropriate conversation with somebody, not a lustful thought, but an actual physical act with somebody sexually that isn't your spouse. It doesn't include pornography. Even though the Greek word is pornea, and we get our English word pornography from that word, they did not have pornography. This is not Jesus saying, hey, if, you're, if your man or your woman's involved in pornography, then you can get a divorce. And I'll talk about that with the next question. But this was not pornography. It's sexual immorality is a physical act of sexual intimacy with someone that isn't your spouse, and it's a serious violation of the marriage covenant. And it produces a long and painful road of recovery for those that have been violated by this unfaithfulness because it requires rebuilding trust, which takes time and effort and, 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 and uh, a deep commitment on both parties. It, it requires forgiveness and the extension of grace. It requires overcoming deep hurt. And it's a painful process to walk through that when Jesus talks about sexual immorality. Point number three, question three. Is adultery of the heart a valid reason to divorce? Adultery of the heart. Jesus addresses that in Matthew 5, 27 and 28. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay, Jesus says it's possible to commit adultery in the heart, not just physically. So is adultery of the heart the same as physical adultery in the sense that it should lead to divorce? And the answer is yes and no. Yes, it's sin. No, it doesn't rise to the level of reasons for divorce. Let me put it this way. In the same way that anger leads to murder, lust leads to adultery. But anger and lust are not the same as murder and adultery. So let me say it this way. Anger doesn't send you to prison and lust doesn't justify divorce. Murder sends you to prison, and adultery is a reason for divorce. <clears throat> Jesus said, anger is the root of murder. Anger is what leads you to murder, but anger is not murder. They're both sin, but they both have different consequences. Lust of the heart leads to the physical act of adultery. Lust and adultery are both sin. They're both sinning, but the consequences of lust and physical adultery are not the same. Question number four, 
Is remarriage after divorce ever prohibited by Scripture? Does Scripture ever say there's a time when you get a divorce that you are not allowed to remarry? And the answer to that is yes, when it's for non-biblical reasons. Yes, for non-biblical reasons. So the Apostle Paul addresses it in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11. But for those who are married, now remember he, he spoke before about a Christian and a non-Christian being married. Now he's talking about two Christians. So two Christians are married. For those who are married, I have a command that comes not from me, but from the Lord. Paul is framing this in what I'm about to tell you came from the teaching of Christ. This is something back in Matthew chapter 5 or Matthew chapter 19 that, that Jesus taught specifically about divorce and remarriage. He goes on. A wife must not leave her husband, but if she does leave him, let her remain single or else be reconciled to him. And the husband must not leave his wife. So what is Paul saying? He's saying Jesus said that if two Christians are married, or Jesus inferred this, that if two Christians are married and one wants a divorce, but there's no biblical reason for the divorce, that person that wants the divorce has two options. Separate and remain single, or separate and at some point, if hearts change, reconcile with your original spouse or the one that you just were just leaving or divorced from. Remarriage is not an option for a Christian who has a spouse that hasn't done anything that deserved divorce and wants to stay married. Two Christians in a relationship, one wants out. They, they, they're just not happy in the marriage anymore. But the one that they're leaving hasn't done anything that's risen to the level of a biblical reason for divorce. And the one that they're leaving wants to stay married. What are the options for the one that wants to leave? Now you can leave and stay single or leave with the hope that you would get reconciled, things would work out between you and your spouse. The one who is being divorced by the one that wants to leave, if you are the, the victim of divorce, then you're always free to remarry because you didn't have a choice over the actions of your spouse. Number five, what did God mean when he said, I hate divorce? We're gonna read that verse in Malachi chapter two. What does God actually mean when he says, I hate divorce? Let's read that scripture in Malachi 2, verses 15 and 16. Didn't the Lord make, make you one with your wife? In body and spirit, you are his. And what does God want? Godly children from your union. So guard your heart. Remain loyal to the wife of your youth. There, there it is. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So guard your heart and do not be unfaithful to your wife or your husband. Okay, let me talk about what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that God hates all divorce. Some divorce is necessary. There, there are some divorces that God approves and allows. He's not saying I hate the fact that divorce happened there. It doesn't mean that God hates the people involved in the divorce. So let me just say this, if God doesn't hate the people that were in, involved in a divorce, whether it was on biblical grounds or not, whether it was totally wrong, or if God doesn't hate the people, why do we? If God doesn't treat them with contempt, why do we? What it means is God hates the destruction that divorce brings to people that he loves. 
He hates the, the pain that it brings to children. He hates what it does to children of a divorce emotionally and spiritually. And he hates what it does to the spouse, the, the, the long-lasting wounds. He, he hates the destruction that it brings to families when that happens. And I'm, I just want to be transparent here for a moment and just share with you how, how incredibly hard this is for me. This might be the hardest area for me to extend grace to people in my life because I deal with this probably a little bit more than you do. I have, I have friends, Christian friends, that come into my office and want help. They want help with their marriage. Sometimes they both want help. Sometimes only one of them wants help. And so I sit with friends and one of them decides that they're out. They, they don't want to be married anymore for non-biblical reasons. And they just crush my other friend. And as much as I counsel them and encourage them, that, that this isn't a reason. You need, you need to make this work. You need to figure out professionally and personally how to, how to make this work. They, they, they walk. And then maybe you, like me, I deal with the carnage. I deal with the carnage left behind in the lives of the kids. I deal with the carnage left behind in the life of the spouse that wanted to stay married. I'm the one that has to hug the 17-year-old boy as he weeps in my arms because one of his parents is walking out of the marriage. I'm the one that has to, to deal with the parent when, when they, 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 they have, his son or daughter has a sports game, a baseball game, and they're at the game, and mom and dad, who are no longer together, are at the game, and after the game, the child's just in tears because he just wants mom and dad to go home together, and they always go home separately, and he just wants his family to be back together. I, I deal with that. And so when, when I deal with the spouse that walked out on that relationship, that walked out on their kids, that walked out on, on their spouse, it's incredibly, if I'm just honest, difficult for me to extend grace and love. And yet that's what God requires of me. God bless you. Well, all of us, that we extend that grace toward people. I want to share a couple of closing thoughts, and then we're going to take communion together. Divorce destroys families. It warps children spiritually and emotionally and it, and it deeply wounds the spouses that are involved. <clears throat> I believe scripture is clear about divorce in areas of sexual immorality, abandonment by a non-Christian spouse, and physical abuse. Emotional abuse is difficult to define and not always clear, but scripture seems to allow for divorce and remarriage in extreme cases of cruelty and humiliation emotionally. We should fight for marriage if there's no biblical grounds for divorce and never encourage someone to get divorced if there's not biblical grounds. Even though it tests, <clears throat> it tests our love, we should respond with grace to those who get divorced and remarried without biblical justification. Wherever you find yourself today, divorced and remarried, maybe divorced twice and remarried, make this marriage work. <clears throat> if you are married today, bring Christ into the center of that marriage and work hard to make that marriage last. Wherever, the, the church always needs to be a healing community marked by grace and humility. And we have to speak the truth in love, understanding that everyone's gonna have to give an account and an answer to God for their own sinful decisions. I, I can love people and extend grace because I'm not responsible for the sinful decision that they made. That, they have to give account to God for that. I, I just have to love them and encourage them and speak truth into their lives. Amen? It's a tough subject, guys. 
We're going to take communion as we bring our time to a close. If you didn't receive the communion elements on the way in, but you'd like to share in communion, lift your hand, keep it up. Our ushers will come around. They'll give everybody the elements. Just keep your hand up if you need those elements. They'll they'll find you. Parents, we would just expect that you would monitor your children to make sure they're they're at the age or maturity where they uh, are ready to take communion. And if you're, if you're visiting us today, you're not a part of Central Church, but you're a Christian, you're welcome to join us at the Lord's table this morning. The cross is the place of grace. There's two sides to grace. One side of grace is the, the unmerited, undeserved forgiveness of God. That, that's what we tend to think of when we think of grace, isn't it? That, that God forgives me, God loves me unconditionally, and, and God removes my shame and the condemnation. God washes it all away, and we, we appreciate that grace. Like the great hymn, Grace That, that Covers All Our Sin. Here's some words from that hymn. We, we love this hymn, don't we? Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace, that is greater than all our sin. Isn't that wonderful, the grace of God? That when we come in our brokenness, whether we've divorced for the wrong reason, whether we've committed sexual sin, whether we're bound in addiction, whatever our sin is, that when we come to the Lord, we come to his table, it's a place of grace. It's a place where we receive unmerited and undeserved forgiveness and cleansing of all of our sin. And as we put ourselves under the fountain of his blood, But there's another side of grace. There's a side of grace that empowers us to live like Christ. Grace to not only be forgiven, but grace to live a holy life. Here's what Paul says in Romans 6. Don't let sin control the way you live. Don't give in to sinful desires. Don't let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master. For for you no longer live under the requirements of law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God. Say it. Grace. Grace. God's grace. Grace that washes. Grace that forgives. Grace that removes our shame. And once we're cleansed, Grace that gives power to live a righteous life. Grace that empowers us to live the extraordinary life that Jesus called us to. Take out the bread this morning, friends, as we think about the life of Jesus, the sinless life of Jesus, his body. Go ahead and partake of the bread. Oh, Lord, we thank you this morning. We thank you for the life that you lived in perfect obedience to the Father under the power of the Holy Spirit and that same life you call us to. We thank you for grace this morning, grace that empowers us to overcome sin and to live like Christ. Go ahead and open the juice this morning and partake of the juice as well. Jesus said, this wine represents the new covenant in my blood. As often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. It represents the forgiveness, the cleansing, the fountain of God that flows over our lives and washes away sin and shame. 
As you receive the juice this morning, receive his forgiveness. If you need to receive his forgiveness for divorce, for remarriage, for for addiction, for anything in your life, lay it before the Lord and say, Lord, I put myself under the fountain of your grace and I receive your mercy. So Lord, we come before you today as we bring our time to a close and we thank you for the grace of the cross, grace that heals, grace that forgives, grace that empowers. Help us to live out the life you've called us to in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen. Stand with me this morning, friends. And as you exit this morning, if you need prayer this morning, again, for anything along the lines of divorce, remarriage, or marriage, go to our prayer chapel. We have people that will pray for you in confidence there. If you have any other prayer needs, we're going to have folks up here to pray for anything else you'd like prayer for this morning. Walk in the grace of Jesus this week, amen? Before you leave, I need about... Five guys or girls.